going along in church history, we're last week, for those of you that weren't here, because I know there's a, a spate of you, uh, last week we talked about the beginnings of the French Revolution, amongst other things. And so we, we talked about kind of what, what predicated it, what, what brought that about, what, uh, what it was like at the beginning. This week we're going to continue talking a little bit about it and, and what, it, what it began to morph into as it went along. Um, what was fun is, last week uh, there were two different specific people within the, the French Revolution that people in class asked me about. We get to talk about both of those this week, which is kind of fun. Anyway, but before we actually talk about the French Revolution, let me get one thing out of the way. Uh, 1792, the Baptist Missionary Society was founded. And, and you might go, oh, okay, no, this is really kind of important. Um, in fact, this little stamp commemorated it back in 1942. At the time, it was called the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. <laughs> that is, it doesn't fit on a button well. So, I mean, you gotta, you got to change that. And, and uh, that became decidedly politically incorrect as, as time went on. But it became known as, anybody ever hear the Baptist Missionary Society? These are the guys that, remember, do you ever, when you were kids, do you ever get those little loaves of bread or, or little boxes where you stick the coins oh, in? And yeah. These guys are the ones that came up with that basic concept. Um, anyway, founded by a guy named William Carey, uh, who's, okay, well, you, why, why, yay? What, what, why, what do you, all of those are really good. He's a very cool dude. He's a very good guy. Born in England to a family of weavers, apprenticed to be a shoemaker. That's what he's going to do. Although it was interesting because he always called himself a cobbler. Cobbler's is somebody who repairs shoes. Um, and he's like, no, no, he was a master shoemaker. That was his big thing. He's like, no, no all I do is I, I put nails and heels. It's nothing. Anyway, while he was a cobbler shoemaker, he taught himself Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Italian, or Greek and Hebrew and Italian and Dutch and French. Because he just wow. spent hours just working on shoes and stuff. So while he would do that, he'd be looking over textbooks and stuff, and just teach him all these, uh, teach himself all these languages. That's the way this guy thought. It's like, oh, I can be accomplishing something while I'm doing this. So let me just learn a whole bunch of languages. And he had a real aptitude for language. And he also became a devout, particular Baptist. Anybody know what a particular Baptist is? Somebody's particular. He's very particular. <laughs> <laughs> the particular. <laughs> The particular Baptists were extremely staunch Calvinists. Um, they make Randy look like Sarah. So, uh, <laughs> but, they, but they got their name from Calvin's doctrine of particular redemption, which is another way of saying, what's particular redemption? Limited atonement. Limited atonement. That, that only a chosen particular few were predestined to be saved in a limited atonement. And so they would call themselves particular Baptists. He was, in particular, a strict Baptist. And the strict Baptist, I know, nowadays you sit there and go, just mean and specific. No, no, no. Strict Baptists were anybody who doesn't agree with everything we're saying, or doesn't live this out, we deny communion and fellowship to. You have to be in lockstep agreement to what we're doing, or else you're not right with Christ. That's why you're the way of saying particular. <laughs> <laughs> They're very particular about their particularness. Okay, anyway. He read about uh, David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans. He read about James Cook and his journeys to the Far East. And he's like, you know, there are a lot of people out there that don't know Christ. We really have to be reaching the heathen with the gospel. You know, heathen is the, the word for you don't know Jesus yet. Those are the people who don't go to church. That too. Well, those are pagans. Get around. No, anyway. <laughs> Being a particular Baptist, his pastor uh, assured him, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. Now, here's the, here's the fun thing. People over the years, and now I kind of wish Sarah were sitting here, because people over the years who are not Calvinists tend to say, how do Calvinists justify outreach? Especially particular Calvinists. If you genuinely believe that God predestined a small clump of people to be saved, and that they're going to be saved no matter what. They have no choice in the matter. And anybody else who's not going to be saved has no choice in the matter. Where does the impetus for evangelism come? Matthew, the end of Matthew, tells us. Yeah, yeah, but who cares? Pardon? Yeah, but who cares? If God is going to... Okay, let's... let's no, no, no. For, forget, forget the biblical rationale thinking. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, psychologically, why? 
if Christy is predestined, no matter what she does or believes or anything, Christy's predestined to not be saved. And Caleb is predestined to be saved. It's not his choice. It's all on God. Caleb is utterly predestined to be saved. Judy, what's your rationale for talking to you? Not biblically, but intellectually. You go, should you be reaching out to Caleb so he'd be saved? It's not up to you. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with Caleb. So why should you? Should you be reaching out to Christy? It's not going to do any good. She's not going to be saved no matter what. Do you understand what I'm saying? In terms of the concern that the people who don't quite understand Calvinism, they're like, well, why would you? Now the answer, yes, of course it is. Well, because the Bible tells us to. Right, but isn't that just some kind of goofy mummery game? I mean, it's why why do this if he's already going to be saved no matter what anybody does, and she's already never going to be saved no matter what anybody does, why do anything? Game! Yes! Thank you for playing. Because <laughs> his friend, Andrew Fuller, wrote a book, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. Because uh, they were good at these catchy titles. Arguing that men have a moral obligation to make a choice to accept the gospel, even though that choice is itself predestined. Your choice is predestined. It's not really up to you. And yet, you have a moral obligation to make that choice, insofar as you understand it to be a choice. And missionaries are God's means to enable you to make that choice. And he's the one who's predestining those missionaries to go help you make that choice. So, Judy sits there and goes, uh, it doesn't make any difference whether I talk to Caleb or Christy or not. They're, God's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. You go, right, but just like they have a decision to make on some level, you have a decision to make on some level as to whether or not you're going to live out Scripture and you are going to be the one that God predestines to use to predest to help bring about the predestined salvation of Caleb. And the predestined, she made a choice not to follow God, non-salvation of, of Christy. Now, again, if you're an Arminian, you might still have troubles with that, but this it, it makes sense for you to go, oh, no, wait a minute. No, it, it isn't a matter of I have to go share the gospel because I'm the one making a difference. And if I don't people who would have accepted Christ are never going to hear about Christ and they're going to die. Good Calvinist Bill, let's... I don't, you're talking bunny talk. That doesn't make any sense. No, you're not going to go and change reality by what you do. You're not going to save somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been saved. Like, it's up to you guys. This is up to God, not you. But you have a responsibility. How do you learn now that you're the predestined one to do it? Okay. A, um, a good Cal... I mean... This is also something you get into like weird, wacky cults in like the uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a whole subculture within the Jehovah's Witnesses of we've got to figure out which one of us are part of the 144,000 who are actually being saved. So if you ever see a kingdom a kingdom hall service when they take communion, they'll pass around the communion plate. I'll get it and I'll pass it to you, and you won't take any. And then you, you'll give it to her, and she won't take any. You give it to her, she won't take any. You give it one to her, she'll take one. And then you'll give it to him, he won't take one. You go. Oh. How did Christy know? She just knew. She, she felt it inside. She's one of the 144,000. A good Calvinist would say, no, 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 no. That's an utter, utter misunderstanding of this. If I have been changed by God, if I have, if God has given me his Holy Spirit and his direction and his ability to make that choice that I couldn't have otherwise made on my own, if God has um, given me that faith as a gift from him to be able to make a decision for Christ, then yes, I, I was predestined for that. If I have become a Christian, I must have always been predestined to have been a Christian. So it's not it's not like some weird cultic thing where you go, I feel like I'm saved, therefore I'm the only one that is. No, no, no. It's using the biblical rationales of, you know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saved. That's the way that works. Which is interesting, because it's exactly the way an Arminian would say that he's saved, except he may not specify that I had been predestined to have been. But he just go, how do you know you're saved? Believe in my heart, confessed with my lips. I mean, dude, Bible. And this is what a good Calvinist would say. Dude, Bible. What's up? So anyway, uh, Fuller says, if you're going to, if, if you really believe that God is predestining people to salvation or damnation, how does he predestine you to get to that point where you can make that choice. 
missionaries, people going and sharing the gospel. That's how we are given that opportunity to make that choice, even if that choice has been predestined. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the fastest way to express it. All right. So, 1792, Carey wrote his own book, An Enquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. They were not Twitter people, okay? That's a great title. It is. So he's like, okay, how do we do this? Why do we do this? And he argued that, quote, before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the whole world were either heathens or Jews. And both, as to the body of them, were enemies to the gospel. Before Christ came, there weren't any Christians. Everybody is either a heathen who has no connection with Yahweh or a Jew. And we see in scripture, we're like, well, neither of those people, in and of themselves, merit heaven. And we're all one of those two. So are you a, a Jew who is outside of Christ, or are you a non-Jew who's outside of Christ? Before Christ, you're one of those two. Once Christ came, then people could actually become Christians. But by definition, we're having to reach out to heathens all the time. That's, that's what everything has always been is reaching out to heathens, that's what it needs to still be. And you go, well, but we've got Christians now. Yeah, but we can't just sit in churches being Christians. We actually have to go and, and tell people, right? I know, it's wacky crazy. Well, William's wacky crazy. Anyway, so a, a chunk of particular Baptists get together, and they, they found this Baptist Missionary Society to actually raise some money, and that's, again, where those little boxes come in. It's like, just... Just a shilling, just anything, a penny, anything that you've got that you can stick in there that will start building up a chest so that we can go overseas and reach people for Christ. So by 19, uh, 1793, they uh, brought in enough money to send Kerry and his whole family to Calcutta, making him the very first Baptist missionary. Which is kind of important, especially since the Baptists kind of went, dude, we're totally doing this whole missionary thing. You know, kind of leaving everybody else in our dust about being missionaries at, at, over time. All starts with one guy going, hey, which I think is, part of why I think this is so cool is, just like one guy going, we ought to do something about this. And his pastor said, nah, I love that. That this whole huge missionary movement was started by somebody whose pastor said, don't do it. I love that. Moravians were a long time before this, though. Yep. Hey. Remember we talked about the Moravians. Yeah. Did he choose Calcutta because of the other guy that had the mission in Calcutta? Yeah, there's some, it, it's Calcutta, well, it's losing it. Yeah, uh, um, uh, Zingenball. Zingenball. So, um, I'm not exactly sure, to be honest, that's a good question, probably because he did have a lot of the same kind of missions work. He was thwarted in sailing there, though, by the British East India Company, who didn't want it. Because we haven't talked about the British East India Company for a while, have we? Well, but they did the same thing to the other guys. Yes, they did. They don't like missionaries, because missionaries convert people and increase and improve their quality of life. How do you exploit workers who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ, and how do you manipulate and, and coerce workers that don't desperately need your money and are willing to do anything for it? Missionaries do nothing to help the British East India Company. So, so they said, nope, you don't get to go. Turn your ship around. You, you don't get to Told the captain, you absolutely cannot take him as a missionary to Calcutta. So he found a Dutch ship that would. Because the Dutch are like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Wait, it'll actually torque out the British East India Company? Oh, I'm all for that. <laughs> absolutely, we'll take you to Calcutta. But this is the fun thing. He, had, he spent six years managing an indigo company as a cover because as a Brit in British-controlled Calcutta, it's a closed country, which is an interesting idea. It's like you're not allowing career missionaries. So just like us sending missionaries to, into like a Middle Eastern country that is closed to the gospel, Calcutta is closed to the gospel, but not because of religious non-Christians, not because there's Shiite Muslims there saying, no, 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 we're but because other Christians are too greedy to want you in there. It, it messes with their business. So Calcutta was a closed, I love the British East India Company, but I keep on those guys. So are you sure they were Christians? 
<laughs> anyway. Particular. <laughs> I think there were three members of the British East India Company that are Christian. They were born in England, so yes. They saw, they saw themselves as that. So it took seven years before the missionary movement um, got their first convert. Um, but then the gospel started flourishing. But Carey wasn't just preaching that gospel. Uh, again, much like all the other ones that we've been talking about in, in, in India, he said, no, wait a minute, I can't sit here in India and just preach the gospel. I have to change the environment. They fought against the caste system. They're like, this whole idea that some people are just inherently better than others, that brothers and sisters in Christ cannot interact with one another because one is of a different caste. No, there's no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. No, you, you, can't, you can't do that in Christ. And so he fought against this, saying, no, all human beings are brothers and sisters in the same family. Um, the, the, the guy who, uh, who became their first convert, if I remember correctly, I think his daughter ended up marrying cross-caste and causing a huge scandal. He also worked with the governor general, who the governor general, John Short, ended up becoming the president of the British and Foreign Bible Society that made sure that they distributed Bibles all around the world. So this guy was in the zone to help. To stop the practices of infant sacrifice on sati. Anybody know what sati is? What is that? That's um, when, when a man dies, his wife is supposed to herself That's exactly right. That's perfectly. If you've ever read Around the World 90 Days, you, you know what sati is. So it's, yeah, the, the widow is supposed to throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre because what life can you possibly have after your husband's death? I mean, seriously. You're so just the widow is supposed to kill herself? Yeah. Nastily, too. Yeah, not just kill yourself, but like, I mean, burning to death is what we did to heretics that we really didn't like, and we wanted them to die badly. You know, yeah, do that voluntarily. Uh, no. So they did that for the kids too. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, no, did I say kids? You said infant sacrifice. Oh, infant sacrifice. Oh, yeah, no, it's different. Um, infant sacrifice. They would uh, sacrifice infants to various Hindu gods, various things like Kali and stuff. Okay. That's, a, that's a different These thing. Were the, there were Christians that were doing that? Oh, yeah. Well, okay, because what part... Cultural. Yeah, what part is cultural, what part is, is religious? Um, uh, in, in China, remember when the Jesuits got in trouble because they, 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 they're like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll do the whole parade thing with you in that, to honor... Uh, Ancestors. I mean, that's an important part of your year is to do this parade down the street to honor ancestors and stuff. And, and then you'd go to the temple and, and worship your ancestors and pray. It's like, okay, so as Christians, we no longer do this important annual festival? Wait, do we? Do we not? Wait, what? Is, okay, I get that we shouldn't probably end up worshiping the ancestors at the end, but does that mean we do the parade or we don't do the parade now? What do we do? And it's kind of like, um, do Christians, do we do Halloween here in the United States or do we not? What is cultural and what is religious? Well, yeah. Christmas is the same thing. Yeah, there are some people who are like, Christmas is, is a completely heathen thing. Luther's like, oh, Christmas is a completely Christian thing. Let's read him. Let's bring trees inside. You know, that kind of stuff. You've got to decide what's cultural, what's not. Um, and it's going to change from culture to culture. So to them, they're like, they're like, yes, 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 be good Christians. And all of my wives, believe me, with time, I don't think you're supposed to have multiple wives. What does that have to do with Jesus on the cross? Uh, stuff. So, I mean, you gotta, you got to think through, is this valid or is this not? You have to stop and think culturally. Um, so he's remembered two very different ways. And this is kind of important to think of. It depends on who you ask. He's either a great man of God, lover of justice, changes the world to, to, for the honor of Christ, helps thousands to know the Lord. That's William Carey. Or he's a cultural imperialist that hates the Indians and hates everything that they do, because he keeps changing all the stuff that's really important to them. Yes, yes, I love India. I hate the caste system. Love India, though. Don't dress like that. Love India. Oh, no, no, don't honor your husband like this. Love India, though. Which is he? Is he a cultural imperialist that wants to make everything England? Or is he, is he somebody who loves justice and mercy? So the things he was changing, there were people that didn't look at it as he was changing it according better. to the Bible. Right. And better. Right. Was, you're just taking our culture. Sure. Because what does the fact 
that my wife wanted to, wants to honor me when I'm dead by jumping onto the funeral pyre? What does that have to do with the fact that she's a Christian? If you really love the Lord, and aren't you told that you should honor your husband and honor your wife, then of course you should do this. Again, my guess is everybody sitting in this room gets myopic about something. There's something that you go, well, of course. I mean, of course you do this. I mean, there are people, there are people who are like, well, of course a Christian shouldn't drink. Really? Where does the Bible say that? Well, of course a Christian shouldn't swear. Really? Where does the Bible say that? Well, of course a Christian should... You know, I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's like, do you know why? Do you know where you're building that argument off of? Or is that just... Why, do you wear a t why are we wearing a tie today? Is there anywhere in the Bible where it says, dress up for Sundays? What are things that we automatically just go, well, I mean, of course you're going to do it this way. Really? Where does it say that? So, so you have to stop and think a little bit um, about why we do some of the things that we do. And our, our, almost, almost everything in terms of the way we do it on a Sunday morning in a service is not the way they, anybody would have done it in the Bible. Um, which doesn't mean it's wrong, but all the stuff that we automatically process as a worship service, yeah, that's not the way Jesus would have processed a worship service. That we do it that way is not necessarily wrong. That we assume that, of course, this is the right way of doing it, is maybe myopically dangerous. Okay. Anyway, so you got to stop and think about Carrie. You go, is he is he doing justice and mercy and changing things that are that are wrong, or is he saying, I don't like them. They don't look the way I process Christianity. Therefore, I'm going to change your whole country. I tend to think number one. But then again. I'm kind of coming from the same cultural milieu that he is. I tend to think sacrificing your infants is naughty, and that it's probably appropriate to fling yourself on the funeral pyre of your spouse. Call me wacky. Anyway, let's go back to this, though. Remember I said this is a stamp that commemorated uh, the Baptist Missionary Society on the 100th anniversary. This guy is named William Ward, who was sent to Sampore in, Western, in West Bengal in 1799. Actually, he was intending to join Kerry in Calcutta, but he was prevented to oh, going to Calcutta by the British East India Company, i.e. the bad guys. Every once in a while there's white hats and black hats in history, definitely black hats. Are they still around? Yeah, that's about it. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they were disbanded in the uh, 1800s. Go check that. I don't know. That's a good question. I totally got to Google that. Um, but once he settled in Sanampur, Ward was instrumentally oversaw uh, printing operations, and they printed the Bible in 26 local languages. And he also helped found Sarampur College, which is still around. So it's 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 cool to see how God uses people, and, and almost in a in a um, yeah yeah very much inspired. And well, and kind of like how how Paul was kept from going one place that he intended to go, so he ended up having to go someplace else and spread the gospel across Europe. You go, well, that works. Yay on that one. You know, so it, it was kind of, it's like, oh, well, I'm prevented from working here, but that just expands our ministry. We're hitting more communities in more different areas. God knows what he's doing. Anyway, I promised that we were going to talk about the, the French Revolution, so let's get there. The cult of reason was established. Anybody ever hear of the cult of reason? Good stuff, because reason is good. Rationality, good. Brain use. Um, no, 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 that's the whole point. This isn't an idol. Appreciating intellect, and I'm a big fan of this. Yes, Nick. According to Wikipedia, the British India Company was defunct in June 1st, 1874. Okay, that's I was thinking in the 19th century. Yay, thank you. All right. French Revolution is in full swing. King Louis XVI not doing well. Uh, every day there's a new thing that people are like, and I don't like this that he does. I don't like this, and he's in this downward spiral. The Marquis de Lafayette. Is, is around, and this is something Jenny was asking me about the other day. He's named Commander-in-Chief of the National Guard in France by order of the National Assembly. Because remember, now the National Assembly's in charge. There's not the king in charge of the army. So the National Assembly's in charge. They have their own national force. They asked this guy to be in, in charge of it. You remember Lafayette. Good guy. In fact, it was Lafayette that said, how about we change the colors to red, white, and blue? I just was in a country that made their colors red, white, and blue as symbols of the revolution. How about we do that? So if you ever go, hey, you ever notice that the French flag got the same colors as our flag? Actually, historically, 
they have the same colors as our flag. That is the right way of saying that. He's also the one who came up with that, uh, putting this little tricolored cockade in their hats. You ever see that in French Revolution pictures where they got this little ribbon sitting in their hats? Yeah, yeah that's, that's Lafayette's idea. I like Lafayette. Anyway, he's trying desperately to maintain order. Things are wobbling more and more out of control. Um, he's constantly trying to protect the royals. Not that he's a royalist, but he's like, my job is to make sure everything runs smoothly. I want revolution, but I don't want, it, it shouldn't be a bloody revolution. It should be like what we tried to do in America, where we said, hey, you know, let's, let's just not do this English thing anymore. There was one point where Marie Antoinette went out on her balcony to address the crowd, and several people in the, in the crowd started shouting, shooter, 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 killer. Marquis de Lafayette approached the queen and kissed her hand, showing her, showing her respect in front of everybody. Everybody loved Lafayette. Everybody respected him, and they're all, shooter, shooter, shooter. And he walks over and treats her with respect and says, she's our queen. You show some respect. And the whole crowd goes, okay, he's cool. It was like, seriously, one kiss on a hand, pivot point, changed everything for that day. Because he's just like, simple act of respect. Pardon me? Well, yeah. But, well, I mean, yeah, she still got her head chopped off later, but that's another day. Wherever he went, because he was the one I thought was like a rock star here in the U.S. People just adored him. Yeah. And he went there and everybody's just like, okay, he's, a, he's like a war hero. He's way cool. He's like, thank you. <laughs> in fact, remember that Declaration of, uh, of um, Rights for Man and, and the Citizen thing? Lafayette's the guy that did kind of push that through. He wrote most of it and pushed Yeah, he's really cool. Anyway, unfortunately, there's a new voice rising in the, in the revolution. Anybody know who this is? Robespierre. Maximilian Robespierre. <laughs> Everybody booing? Yes, you understand Robespierre. Gifted speaker. And they call for violence and terrorism and the death to the monarchs. He gets, he gets very popular in the National Assembly amongst various crowds, except for Lafayette. Lafayette sits there and goes, okay, no, 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 this is terrorism. I, I say we arrest Robespierre and his little band of people because they're rabble-rousing at a time when what we're trying to do is bring order. Because remember, the king has done a lousy job the last couple of years. People are, are rioting and starving the streets. We need to bring order. We need to make this work. Robespierre is just pandering to fear. What we don't need is a demagogue in political power just because people are scared of terrorism. <laughs> if you can't apply that today, you're not working. <laughs> but since Lafayette was in charge of, he, was in he had custody over the, the royals, and since Louis almost slipped out of the country at one point, sneakily got, got they, they caught him and they brought him back. But he almost got out of the country. Robespierre goes, well, I wonder how that happened in Lafayette's watch. Apparently Lafayette says, no, no, we need to protect our monarchs. Lafayette says, hey, let me help Louis out of the country. Lafayette's like, I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm the guy that brought him back. Robespierre's like, traitor. I think we call Lafayette. Who should be arrested? Not me. I'm the one just serving the people. Lafayette's the one that was trying to sneak your king out of the country and save the monarchy and bring that all back. Remember when people were starving in the streets? That's Lafayette's fault! And Lafayette was forced to resign. So you go, wait, wait, you're the only sane person of this whole group. Please don't make him resign. Nope, he's gone. So Robespierre says, that's it, we're abolishing the, the monarchy. And everybody's like, okay. So they abolished the monarchy September 21st, 1792. And September 22nd was officially labeled day one. There's a new calendar, new months, 10-day week, and it's day one of the new calendar, the day after we finally got rid of those monarchs. First, French Republic began its rule, and one of its first actions was to establish the cult of reason. Because we need to de-Christianize France. We need to get rid of all of those trappings, because the church is part of the problem. That is, is, is what has dragged us down. So we need to get rid of the worship of God. So the French people are supposed to worship reason. Mental faculties. Not, not as a god. This is not an idol. It's very, they're very clear about this. <laughs> but it's a way of elevating humanity to the level of being worthy of worship. We are worthy of worship in that we have reason. We have mental faculties. If you're going to worship something, worship, worship humanity. Do you ever run into this in any way nowadays? 
we just watched the thing on Gene Roddenberry the other day, and you're like, yeah, this is pretty much Gene Roddenberry all over the place. As one of the people put it, in France, there would be only one God, the people. That's the God of France. So, all elements of religion are supposed to be destroyed. Churches are desecrated. Clergy put to death by the hundreds. Um, crosses are removed from all cemeteries, all graves. And over the gates of the cemeteries was placed a, a plaque that says, Death is an eternal sleep. You remove every trapping of Christianity. If there's a cross anywhere in France, burn it. Because if, if you really want health and stability, remove God from the equation. Isn't that what Ben Franklin said the other day? Oh, wait, no, this is the opposite of what Ben Franklin said the other day. Bacchanals are held throughout the land, wild revelry, drunkenness, sex, because we're free from all those moral constraints of religion that has held us back all these years. In fact, at the Festival of Reason, prostitutes were dressed like the goddess of reason and paid to have sex on the altars of desecrated churches, including Notre Dame. Even the wife of one of the Republic's leaders, uh, a woman named Sophie, who's the wife of the guy who would actually coined the, the phrase uh, liberty, equality, fraternity. You ever hear that related to the... Yeah, that's this guy. His wife... Uh, uh, dressed sleazily in a transparent toga and led the procession up to Notre Dame, accepting kisses and caresses from anybody who expressed interest in her. And the master of ceremonies declared, Long live the Republic, long live reason, down with fanaticism. Because there's nothing fanatical about the French Revolution. And we have abandoned our inanimate idols for reason. For this animate image, this masterpiece of nature. Because apparently Sophie was a babe. I don't know. That's the French Revolution. <laughs> totally different, Sophia. It is, it is unfortunate. Um, is this where, yes, very much like the Golden Cap. Is this where they do, um, like when they have the woman god, isn't it Sophia? Well, oftentimes that's that's wisdom, and that's a lot of that comes out of uh, Gnosticism, which we talked about a couple hundred years ago, almost literally. Um, but where where the early Gnostics, uh, kind of twisting Christianity, were saying that what we're really worshiping is wisdom. And so we need this kind of esoteric hidden wisdom. Okay. They can name it, Sophia. Okay. Yeah. In fact, uh, ironically, it was uh, uh, Simon Magus. You remember from, from Acts? The, the, the one who, who was like, hey, I'll give you money if you show me how to, how to do these magic tricks you guys are doing. Simon Magus uh, created his own Gnostic cult where he hired a prostitute and called her Sophia and said, let's all worship her. Yeah, so it's very similar. Anyway, they have this big orgy after that, and if you say, you know, I, I struggled to picture a government-sponsored prostitute cavorting and acti actively defiling Notre Dame. I just, I couldn't picture that happening today. In September of 2014, two women in France were fined for putting the head of a pig outside a mosque uh, on a drunken New Year's Eve prank. They were drunk, they said, hey, I dare you to do this, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, and they got fined. And rightly so. That's terribly offensive to Muslims. That was wrong. That same month, nine members of the militant protest group Femen, which is a group of, uh, of feminists who are famous for protesting topless and painting slogans on their bodies and stuff, several of whom are former prostitutes, were acquitted after vandalizing Notre Dame, um, including writing on the altar and damaging a bell used in worship while painted with slogans like religion is slavery and down with morality. Because, you know, that's what we all think is appropriate. The court decided that churches are public places and they're just exercising their public freedom of speech rights. In fact, they ordered the church to pay each of the women 1,500 euros because they were evicted against their will by church security guards. So in the same month in France, two women were fined for offending Christianity, or uh, Muslims, and nine women were paid for offending Christianity. Wow. So... I would say welcome to France, but I'm like, is this any time that you build into your system this idea of, yeah? Okay, but in France, are any of the taxes that they pay go to the church? Now? In Germany, that's true. They pay taxes to the church. They pay taxes to the church. It's possible, but even... Go ahead. So that's why maybe the court would say, this is a public place. Oh, yeah. But I'm talking more philosophically that you, you know, we're actually supporting people um, in Notre Dame, prostitutes in Notre Dame, actively defiling 
a church out of freedom of speech, and maybe it is, maybe legal precedent, maybe that's exactly what they should have done in France. In terms of moral understanding of things, you should look at this and go, well, you can get kind of wacky. You can wobble things out of control here. And it's still vandalism. I mean, even if you yeah. take away the religious looking at it, if you're defacing even public property, that's still that's Yeah. And the church had to pay for its... The church had to pay for its own restoration. Question now. Yeah. Why have we got to where we will defend a religion versus not defend another one? I get why they hate Christianity. I understand that. But I don't understand, even like today and everything, why we are supporting Islam. I don't get it. I would think that, you know, just like... You know, we had pictures where Michelle Obama went in and didn't have her head thing on and know she was so praised. She was offending the Islam faith by doing that as a woman. I don't get why we're so... I don't understand. Well, that's a legit question and probably more than we have time to do right now. Other than Maybe I'll just say this as a, as a, as a rule of thumb answer. Um, I think because in a lot of things in, in life, we tend to not utilize critical thinking. And so we, we kind of go with whatever sound bites strike us at any given moment or whatever um, whatever wind blows us one way or the other. So for one set of people, it just makes total, in 1952, for one set of people, it just makes total sense that, of course, we would support Christianity. Of course, we would have Christian iconography all around our government buildings. And of course, we're not a Muslim nation. Of course, we're not a Hindu nation. And so any... Any laws that support Christianity and undermine these, it's completely appropriate. What with the fact that we're all Christians here in the United States? You know, well, actually, it's that whole First Amendment thing talking about not taking sides religiously, right? Um, and that's really what that's about. It's not a matter of, oh, we can't do anything with the religion. It's like, no, we're not taking sides. So the idea that you would support Christianity and not the other things in your laws is inappropriate. And yet, because people thought, oh, no, but, I, but we're all Christians, so yeah, that's totally appropriate. If you're coming to our country and with your wacky other religion, why it's appropriate for us to, to put you on the, on, the, on the sidelines. It made sense to people. In the same way today, if people feel like Christianity is the bad guys, conservatives are the bad guys, you guys started a culture war and then lost it, we don't like you, um, everything bad, I, I, I've read Voltaire, I've read Gibbon, um, I've read Robespierre, everything bad that's ever happened happened because of religion. So uh, since the dominant religion is... is is Christianity, then anything that, that spits on Christianity is probably worth doing. Which is why you'll watch a TV show and the priest is a pedophile, the pastor is cheating on his wife, and the imam is a wonderful human being. Um, because we don't want to offend Muslims, but Christianity, well, it hasn't come up. And so there's, there is kind of an emotive sense to this that, that, that goes, I don't care about hypocrisy. I think it's also, I also have a lot to do with Christianity is still seen as kind of dominant cultural thing um, and kind of, I don't know, a source of power for people in our country, whereas Muslims are viewed as a minority. Like, they're the underdogs. They're, they're like, the So if people... Uh, <laughs> but there, there's that perception, exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I think you're you're right. Is that they're they're seen as kind of the the big dogs that have it coming. They've lorded it over other people enough, and these are the people we need to support and encourage. Yeah. Um, in that respect, it can even be seen relatively value neutrally as I'm just trying to level the playing field, give these guys a shot, and lose guys time. End of the year, Louis tried, was tried and found guilty of high treason and crimes against France. They're a little nebulous, but he's clearly guilty. So Robespierre called for his execution. He's been calling for his execution since, the, since September 21st. Um, but the assembly said, can we at least give him a trial before we kill him? Robespierre said, fine, fine, fine. So Louis dies by the guillotine in January of 1793. Marie Antoinette executed the same year, a little bit later on. And as French historian uh, Jules Michelet said later on, if we accept the proposition that one person can be sacrificed for the happiness of the many, it will soon be demonstrated that two or three or more could also be sacrificed for the happiness of the many. 
Little by little, we'll find reasons for sacrificing the many for the happiness of the many, and we'll think it's a bargain. Think, think that through. You can just like, whoa, we, we killed 60% of our people to make the, the, percent, the, the majority of our people happy. Do math, man. I don't think you understand what you're talking about. In fact, the deaths were beginning at the beginning of something that was called the Reign of Terror. Heard of this before. We talk about that in, in, in American English now. Ah, oh, it's a Reign of Terror. Stop and think for just a second. Forget the idiom. Stop and think about what that meant when it was originally. The king is no longer reigning. Terror reigns in our country now. There's no king, just horror. That's the country. That's exactly what it was. Loss of morality from removing church structure and things. Every, just, everything just totally falling apart. There's violent protests in the streets, counter-revolutions all over the place. It was literally the time when the streets ran red with blood. It was just horror after horror after horror. And Lafayette's sitting there watching from distance going, I can't, I can't do anything. I just have to watch my country fall apart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, eventually. <laughs> sort of. So, um, 1794, the cult of the supreme being was founded, which is a little different. Robespierre says, okay, we do need some order. Um, I think I think we went too far. I wasn't a huge fan of that cult of reason thing anyway. And it's devolved into this chaos. So tell you what, this time let's have a deity. Let's actually have a god. Not a Christian god. No, no, it has nothing to do with Christianity. I'm a deist. So it's not a Christian. What? Sort of. I just want the parts of religion that control the masses. So, there is a deity, but he's completely distant. It, it, it's completely distant and unknowable. In fact, because the human soul is immortal, we can reach that deity, we can attain stuff by adhering to the one quality we can attribute to the deity. What's the one thing that we do know about God Virtue, defined in the classical Roman sense of personal honor and and fidelity to the state. No, no, it's just it just makes it makes sense. Read Voltaire. I mean, it makes total sense. So yeah, it, you are you are a good member of the cult of the supreme being if you. We'll, we'll do sermons where we talk about how important it is to to support the state, and you need to honor your agreements, and you need to have personal integrity. I mean, we're not going to quote scripture because that's for Christians. Um, there's no Christianity. And the leader of the cult of reason, those are all executed, and the new leader of the cult of the supreme being is Robespierre. They there executed everyone from the cult of reason? Yeah, because that was obviously a mistake. But, but we've never supported that as the assembly. That was other people. You know, I, I thought I remembered that. No, no, never happened. Read 1984. Never happened. Never happened. Read Animal Farm. No, no, we've <coughs> The new law of the land uh, allows for uh, trials and executions with uh, ex trials without juries and executions without trials. And when they did try people, they tried them in batches, like 20, 50 people. They go, okay, yeah, you're all on the list, therefore you're all guilty. And Robespierre has the authority to kill anybody he wants to kill has more authority than a king ever had. One of his fellow revolutionaries even said, it's not enough for him to be the master, he has to be the god. Well, funny you ask. Yeah, Robespierre pushed it too far, and people are like, nope, 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 nope. His own people began to suspect, was this all just to get yourself into power? All these years that you've been preaching revolution and, and all the common men are all equal, is this just so that you're the big pig? Is that some pigs are more equal than others? Is that we're read animal farm? So is that really where we're where we're going with this? You just wanted the throne for yourself, so that he was charged with tyranny, charged with being a dictator. And Robespierre, who had always been really good at speeches, did the single dumbest speech he's ever given. Went before the assembly and said, "This is just a great big conspiracy, vast right wing conspiracy against me." Look, it's a horrible thing. That's it. You're all standing against me. Which, of course, is going to sway the National Assembly, right? They're all going to go, well, he's right. No! <laughs> so the Assembly called for Robespierre's arrest. So he tried to kill himself, but accidentally only blew off the bottom of his jaw. Well, you got to be careful. If you stick a pistol, especially if they're long, if you stick a pistol under your jaw, 
you're going to hit the brain. Otherwise, it's going to be really unpleasant. He was in massive pain with a bandage wrapped around his jaw, holding it together. So he died screaming in pain at the guillotine because as they put his head up there, the guy ripped off the bandage. And he's just like screaming and, and horror pain, and then they killed him. That's how he died. It seems to be very sad. It's very sad. But almost 18 months to the day after he'd had Louis executed. But you just go, not ends well for Robespierre. Actually, Louis actually was very, very responsible, very respectful when he, on the day he died. Robespierre. Yeah. Same year, Richard Allen founded the AME Church. I didn't know what the AME Church is. Good, two people in the background. Really? That's where you go? Okay. So Allen was born at... Hell was born into slavery, and most of his siblings were resold when he was young. But uh, his, his the, the guy who, who held the slaves actually said, it's okay if you guys go to church. So he attended a local Methodist Bible study and eventually started evangelizing other slaves. And he was able to purchase his freedom by the time he was at age 20, because again, his master, somebody came along and said, you know, <laughs> slavery is bad, and his master's like, you know, I think you're right. If you guys want to purchase your freedom, just pay me back for, for what I spent. So he was able to... to Purchased his freedom, began attending classes to be a preacher. In fact, do you remember when we talked about that Christmas conference in 1784 where Francis Asbury was ordained as the bishop and then Asbury went and licensed a whole bunch of other preachers? By the way, this month's issue of Christian History, the cover story, Francis Asbury. You guys know all about Francis Asbury because, you know, Sunday school. So, um, so uh, he was actually at this conference when Asbury is... is Licensing all sorts of new preachers, including Alan, which is cool. That he's just like, no, yeah, you are totally like, go be a circuit riding preacher. Knock yourself out. Instead of doing circuit riding, though, he's like, I really think I need to be centralized. So he went to uh, St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. And i got to talk about that real quickly. Philadelphia is this big Episcopal, because it used to be Anglican, but you can't be Anglican anymore, because Anglican means Church of England. And you're not part of Church of England anymore, so now you have to find another name for it, so now you're Episcopals. So, they're a big Episcopal area, and that the Methodist movement is growing within the Episcopals, but it's not seen as its own church yet, by most people. Therefore, to emphasize that your local church is an Episcopal church that embraces Methodism, you are a Methodist Episcopal church. I say that because when I say Methodist Episcopal, people are like, what, did they merge? Like, no, 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 this is, this is a name from before they ever split, so... Anyway, and he began leading segregated early morning services for the black congregants. And this, uh, so he got to actually lead some of that. 1787, he and a guy named Absalom Jones moved the black congregation out of the church when one Sunday all the, all the African Americans in the congregation were shoved into a new um, back balcony section. Forcibly, by the ushers, they're like, you can't sit with anybody else, you have to go over here. Okay, you've had us having segregated early morning services. Now we can't even sit in the same room with you guys. You do, you do understand we're brothers in Christ, and so they're finally like, you know what? We're leaving. This we, this is <clears throat> at best, this is uh, counterproductive to the whole. We're trying to grow in Christ and grow closer to our brothers and sisters, and so they start their own congregation, forming the Free African Society. This is actually. Um, uh, in Philadelphia, some people plaque about uh, about the Free African Society. Anyway, 1792, they incorporated as the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas. 1794, they renovated an old blacksmith's building to become the first church building, and they called themselves the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the A-N-E. And that's the, that's the beginning. That's, that's the first, well, Harold. The other week we talked about the first specifically African-American congregation. So this is not the first African-American congregation, but but um, it, it, it's going to grow here in a sec. 1799, Allen's officially ordained as a Methodist pastor, which is different than preacher. Preacher can go around and preach different places, but you're going to be the shepherd of a congregation by Francis Asbury. Again, cover story. 1816, they're like, okay, even though, even though Asbury's been way cool about everything, Everything we do, we have to pass by panels of white bishops in, in a predominantly white denomination. And instead of actually giving us a feeling of autonomy and of, uh, of respect, the fact that we are seen as that black church we want to support, or that black church we don't want to support, keeps emphasizing 
are differences here. And that's contrary to what we were trying to do in the first place. We're trying to have a place where we, we don't have to focus on racial issues in that respect. When they ignorant of racial issues. But we want a place where we can just focus on growing in the Lord and not have to keep saying, yes, that's right, I'm a different color. So they decided to start their own denomination. They took four different black congregations in four different cities to form the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first specifically black denomination. So that's why they're bringing this up as something important. All that started in 1790, well, 92, but specifically that church, 1794. I like this logo because it kind of tells its own story. First off, the colors, the red, black, and green, have become associated with Africa, right? Anybody know where that came from? Where that started? Well, in large part, uh, civil rights leader Marcus Garvey, creating the Pan-African flag in 1920, saying, you know, we have our own culture. I mean, yes, disparate tribes, different places on a, on a continent, but I want a sense of cultural identity. And each of the colors means something. It's pointing to different things. Um, but but the idea of saying, can, it's not just red, white, and blue, and it's not anti-red, white, and blue, but can we can we see ourselves not as uh, as this tribe and that tribe and these people and those people and freeze and, 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 and slaves? Can we see each other as part of the cultural identity of that continent? Can we, can we see ourselves as part of one larger unit? So the colors are pointing back to that. And the anvil is pointing back to the, the blacksmith shop where they started in. But more than that, I love this. According to their website, in the blacksmith shop was an anvil used to pound and shape metal ores into a usable and functioning object. And as any blacksmith will tell you, hammers may wear down, and many a man may lose his life to the exhaustion from the hard work of being a blacksmith, but the anvil never fails. A man only need to purchase one in his or her entire lifetime, and it continues to last through many lifetimes. So it is with God. He cannot be beaten down, and he is eternal. The anvil represents our beginning and the lasting strength of our Lord and Savior that never ceases. Like, oh, I love that mental image. It's like, it's like you may be pounded and shaped. Even the, the instrument that God uses to pound and shape you may change over time. The anvil never does. Booyah. Yes, very much cool. The next year, let's end with Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine published The Age of Reason. Remember Thomas Paine? It's the guy that wrote Common Sense back in 1776. Mr. Mr. What? Well, I can't. That's actually a really good picture of him because he's kind of a he's kind of a twerp. He liked picking fights. He ran he ran a follow way too many people in the United States, and so because he's always picking fights with everybody all the time, and so I mean, so finally he's just like, there's really no place in the United States I go where people don't go, oh, yeah. <laughs> So he felt compelled to leave, um, and, 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 and in part because he wanted to support the revolution in France. He's like, oh, there's a fight. Um, but he ran afoul of Robespierre, because he torts off everybody everywhere. And if no, I was going to say, if there's anybody ever that might be easy to torque off, it's Robespierre. So he's thrown into prison, and he's awaiting execution. Interesting story about the fact they would, they would chalk up a little mark in front of everybody's cell that is going to be executed. And, and so they would go through that way. The, the guard doesn't have to have a list. He'd just go, there's a chalkboard in front of your cell, open up. And he had his door open one day because he was accepting visitors and things. The guard chalked up the, the, the mark in front of the cell door, but the cell door was open. So when the cell door closed, it went over the chalk mark. And so they went through and they're like, you, you, didn't see a chalk mark in front of his door, went to the next one, next one, here you go. Yep, Thomas Payne King. That close, one open door away from getting his head chopped off. Wow. Barely missing! His head getting chopped off. He still said, I still think Robespierre's got the right idea. We need to de-Christianize France. We need to de-Christianize the world. We need to to to, to reconstruct all this. Ooh, that was good. He said, soon after I published the pamphlet Common Sense in America, I saw the exceeding probability that a revolution in the system of government would be followed by a revolution in the system of religion. In fact, he's like, yes, I should be, because the subtitle of this is the Age of Reason being an investigation of true and fabulous theology. Fabulous being used in its sense of, that was a fabrication, that's not true. So it's, there's true theology, and there's horrible theology, you know, like Christianity. So, he agreed with Gibbon, he agreed with Voltaire, Christianity is a blight on history. And he's like, no, this is horrible. I'm going to give you just a quick smattering of things. It's like, the study of theology as it stands in Christian churches is the study of nothing. 
It's founded on nothing. It rests on no principles. It proceeds by no authorities. It has no data. It can demonstrate nothing and admits no conclusion. Which is easy to say if you don't back it up with documentation or data or authority. Give me the anvil, please. Yes, yeah. Like, pound a little on the anvil on you, please. So why are they so afraid of it? Why is it that nobody stubs their toe and yells, Buddha? Why is it that we stub our toe and go, Jesus Christ? Why does that become the square word? There's power there. There's power there. And anything that you can do to drag that down and, and drag it through the mud is worth doing. I mean, God. Anything that we can do to suck that of any kind of authority is worth doing. Whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of God. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. And for my part, I sincerely detest it, as I detest everything that is cruel. It's, it's a book of lies, wickedness, and blasphemy. For what can be a greater blasphemy than to ascribe the wickedness of man to the orders of the Almighty? Now, if you say that God is the author of reality, that God is sovereign, and then you look at the wickedness of humanity, and it's, it's all somehow God's doing, misreading Calvinism, then this is a horror. Yeah, Christianity is the worst thing that we could possibly have. Do you know what kind of upbringing, what Cain's parents were like? I'm just curious where you I don't know. He came from England, but, uh, but I, I don't know. That's a good point. If I remember correctly, in common sense, he was arguing from, like, kings uh, against... Oh, yes, like, yes. The Bible, like, Saul was wanted by the people of Israel, and the, the oh, oh, yes, they were yes. asking for in his bed. Yep, yep. So, yeah, no, he, no, yeah, I mean, he had a religious upbringing. I don't know, I don't know what brought this. It might, it, it might, I mean, he, he did. He used biblical rationales for things. Um, it, 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 at various times, he's, he's talked like an atheist, and other times he talked like a deist. Um, it might be as simple as just, you're an angry man. And you're just slashing out at everybody. Perhaps his most famous quote is this. If Joseph the carpenter dreamed, as the book of Matthew says he did, that his betrothed wife Mary was with child by the Holy Ghost, and an angel told him so, I'm not obliged to put faith in his dreams. Christian authors exclaim against the practice of offering up human sacrifices, which, they say, is done in some countries. And those authors make those exclamations without ever reflecting that their own doctrine of salvation is based on a human sacrifice. They're saved, they say, by the blood of Christ. Here's the quote that's very famous. The Christian religion begins with a dream and ends with a murder. <laughs> now what else is there? I mean, come on. That's it, that's it, that's it. So the book was not popular, strangely enough. Not a lot of people liked it. Book publishers were, were fine for producing it. Ben Franklin was among the people who were the loudest opponents. He said, without the belief of a providence that takes cognizance of guards and guides and may favor particular persons, there's no motive to worship a deity, to fear its displeasure, to pray for its protection. Think how great a proportion of mankind consists of weak and ignorant men and women, and of inexperienced and inconsiderate youth of both sexes, who have need of the motives of religion to restrain them from vice, to support their virtue, and retain them in the practice of it till it becomes habitual, which is the great point for its security. You almost hear him saying, have you been to France? Yeah. <laughs> and perhaps you're indebted to, perhaps you're indebted to her originally, that is to your religious education. That's why you have any sense of morality at all. For the habits of virtue upon which you now justly value yourself. If men are so wicked with religion, what would they be without it? Go back to France. Going back again, have you seen France? That changed once the 19th century kicked in, though. Um, the, the book started becoming popular amongst revolutionaries, and this is kind of another answer to some of the questions we've had. Once you have these lower-class, um, frustrated workers in the Industrial Revolution that find themselves thwarted by the man and all power structures, then you want to overthrow the man and all power structures. So you say, down with government! And religion! That's holding us down! Anything that I see as holding us down, down with them. Which is not to say that churches didn't do a horrible job, or... I mean, fill in the blank. There's a, throughout history, what revolution, what uh, civil rights movement, what um, uh, civil war, what 
Has there ever been a movement of man, even ones that were utterly justified, has there ever been one where there weren't people saying, who else can we throw on this fire? Right? And there's always been stuff where you sit there and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. And Floyd! What? What did Floyd do? I never liked him. But if we're burning everything, let's burn that too. Um, did many people living through the French Revolution, I mean, they hadn't seen the Notre Dame, um, Notre Dame desecrated like that. They must have thought end times. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds so apocalyptic and yeah, so. Yeah. And there were a lot of. Abomination. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a lot of people in France writing that. Unfortunately, a lot of them were getting killed. Uh -huh. So, I mean, and again, realize it wasn't until Vietnam that we had a televised war, right? Uh, even World War II, and, and, and Korea, we barely talked about with Americans, but World War II, there were heavily edited newsreels and stuff. It was, it was the late 1960s before America had a sense of what's actually going on in the war. How many people in the world actually understood what was going on in the French Revolution? How many just heard, hey, by the way, the French are having a revolution? By the way, hard stuff is happening. Really? You know, my crops are coming in. Oh, good. It's, just, it's so distant. But this whole religion is part of the power structure. It's an opiate of the masses, the sort of thing that Marx brings out then later on, going, aha, let's trot out religion as part of the problem uh, that uh, Hitler brought up, trotted out. Hey, religion's part of the problem. Lenin brought up, hey, you know, religion's part of the problem. Yeah, let me, let me downplay, just like the British East India Company, anything about religion that might actually undermine what we're trying to do here. Let's emulate France. Let's emulate their revolution and their liberation of the lower class. Don't you want to be liberated? Don't you want your class, your group, your gender, whatever, to be liberated? And you go, well, yeah. Well, then join us in burning Floyd. <laughs> I want my gender to be liberated. I, I think women have been oppressed. Then burn Floyd. Yeah, okay. You know, but that's, that's the sort of thing that happens. When Richard Carlyle was arrested and tried, he was a guy who was a big proponent of freedom of speech. So he, co he consciously was trying to push the envelope. When he published the book in 1818, sales went from a bare trickle to 4,000 in a couple months because the case was publicized. It's like excerpts from the book were in the newspaper. The whole book was read into court records. And so it became a matter of public record. All of a sudden, everybody's like, well, i got to read this. I mean, again, how many people... How many people knew about the AME church one day versus how many people Googled it the next day? Suddenly everybody wants to know what's going on here. Here, they're like, who's doing what's an age of reason? What let me Google. Let me let me Google an age of reason and find this thing. And and within within a couple of years, twenty thousand copies printed, which was huge by then. Which means that eventually it became hip and intellectual to openly despise Christianity. And to read this and go, well, because I'm an intellectual, I know this stuff. 1796, yeah. He published a scathing letter to George Washington saying, you're wrong, you would be, you jerk. Because he thought, in part, because he thought, I think Washington turned me over to Robespierre, because Robespierre is a class act. Washington must have told him to, to, to arrest me. Washington's what? like, what? Okay, Washington's sitting there going, I, I didn't even know anything. Nobody convinces Robespierre of anything. <laughs> He's like, the only reason we won the war was because of France. You're a jerk. And nobody in America really appreciated that. Well, with Washington being beloved. And it says something about Payne's character that originally wanted this letter. He's like, I'm writing a snotty letter to, to Washington. He's like, I want my publisher to print this so everybody could read my snotty letter to Washington. But he originally wrote it to be delivered to Washington on Washington's birthday. I want you to read this on your birthday, how, how much you stink. James Monroe's like, no. No, I'm not letting that happen. I'm sorry. No. And uh, you've been staying in my house? You may want to move because you're just a So sport. he was in the U.S. At the, time. at the time, yeah. By the time he died in 1809, Payne pretty much alienated everybody. There were a grand total of six people at his funeral. And not because of the weather. And not because of the weather. Unlike Mozart. But yeah, so you sit there and you go, not a nice person. But the, again, do you see some flows and some commonalities between this? We need to end. But you see some people who are saying, I'm going to stand up for what's right. I want to stand up for Christianity. I want to make a difference in people's lives. You see people willing to change societies, willing to stand against inequality, stand against 
um, caste systems that, that keep people down, saying race, caste, this should not be things that separate us as Christians. We need to have um, relationship and family in Christ. And you have other people saying, can we just get rid of this whole religion thing? Because that's really the problem. You go, wait a minute. What has changed things for the good here? It was Carrie, it was Alan. These are people who are going, because of my faith in Christ, I'm going to change the world in a positive way. But you have ropes, fear, and pain going, no, religion is the problem. If we just got rid of more religion, we would have more joy. Has that ever been the case in, in, in history? Which is not an argument for everybody should just be Christians because everybody would be happier. But you go, this removal of God from things, Ben Franklin was absolutely right. Once you remove God from things, it will fall apart. And at the risk of sounding political, we live in a society now that says, we have this wonderful base that religion bought for us. That's wonderful. We'll keep the base, but we'll remove the religion and everything will be fine. No, it's wobbling out of control. And yet, we look at it and go, no, no, no. Humans are being more and more appreciated. It's a good thing. Everything that's happening in our country right now is a good thing. You go, see, I'm seeing more people getting shot and killed. I'm seeing more people being jerks to one another. I'm seeing more people making decisions because of Twitter. I'm sorry. It's getting worse, not better. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray, help us, Lord. Help us to remind ourselves to thank you for what you've done every day. Not to, not to become alarmists, but to realize, to realize that doing things without you in our lives is causing the very problems that we worry about. Help us, Lord. Instead of ignoring that or shaking a fist and doing nothing, I pray, Lord, help us to touch the people we interact with on a daily basis as ambassadors for you. To, to make the world better and different and, and improved. Not just to improve the social condition, but because we want to live in a kingdom that honors you. Help us to lay ourselves before you, and our church before you, and our nation before you, as individuals and as a community. Help us, Lord, to remember to put the main things as the main things. In Jesus' name. Amen.